Kids are going down there to their classes. Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18. And let's look at verse 27. Verse 27. We're going to read down to verse 32. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. So we're going to cover Genesis 18 and 19 this morning, uh, this coming week. If you've ever, if you've been into a store lately, there's no way you could not know this, that this coming week on Tuesday is Valentine's Day. And I'm just curious, out of everybody here this morning, how many of you ended up with the very first person you ever dated? Okay. I see three hands raised. Um, how many of you are very thankful that you didn't end up with the first person you ever dated? <laughs> Um, now, cultures with arranged marriages might be a little bit different, but in our culture, it is pretty common. Uh, it's a common experience to pursue a loving relationship with somebody only to have your heart broken, except for these three weird people that raised their hands earlier. Uh, many, many of us could give testimony of investing time, money, uh, affection, into someone, but them letting us down, right? Many of us have shared in, in that experience. Well, First John, John gives us a commandment, but he also gives us a warning. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, He's not talking about loving sinners or loving people. He's talking about loving this world's system. This episode uh, that we're going to look at in chapter 18 and 19 this morning, this episode of Sodom and Gomorrah, it, it would serve as a warning to ancient Israel about the wickedness that surrounded them. Uh, that wickedness would always, the world system would always be a stumbling block. To, to Israel. I mean, she always struggled with understanding her peculiar identity among the nations. Do we understand our peculiar identities 
in this world's system. God, through Moses, would later say in Deuteronomy and then quoted in Mark and the other Gospels, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. So there is a warning here, not just for Israel, but this is a warning that we still need to heed today of pursuing something that will not fulfill us. In fact, not only something that will not fulfill us, something that is in direct opposition to God. The title of our message this morning is Don't Give Your Heart to Sodom. Don't Give Your Heart to Sodom. Um, the, the great philosopher and scholar Ben Kenobi said about Tatooine, you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. Uh, that's going to describe Sodom very well this morning as we look in this passage. In fact, you will have the urge when you walk out of here and go home to take a shower because of the stuff we're going to look at this morning. So it's, it's more than just not giving your heart to Sodom or the world system. It's about giving your heart to God. So give all your heart to God. And there's five reasons that we'll see in the text this morning. First of all, intimacy with God is a privilege. Intimacy with God is a privilege. Out of all the people in the world, uh, at this point, this is the sixth or seventh time that God has appeared to Abraham. Um, And that is quite a privilege. God was not doing that. Yeah, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, God would come down and manifest himself in some fashion and walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. We don't know how God manifested himself to uh, Enoch, who walked with God, or with Noah. But at this time in the world system, God is narrowing down you know, his plan, his program, to this family that's going to come out of Abraham. And he's made all these promises to him. But Abraham has this outstanding, remarkable privilege of having these times of fellowship with, with God, that, were, uh, that was an outstanding privilege. Um, I'm going to summarize uh, verses 1 through 16 of chapter 18 for us. So what's happening here is Abraham is sitting outside his tent in the hot afternoon. Maybe he's taking a siesta because it is the, the heat of the day. And there are some travelers that go by. He saw these three men traveling, and he's a hospitable guy. Or maybe he saw something unique about them, but he invited them to come and to rest at his camp. So he goes, he hurriedly fixes a meal for them um, and sets it up under the shade of a tree. But we're going to find in this, this text that these aren't just travelers. In fact, one of these um, is actually equated with Yahweh. And the other two are angelic messengers. Uh, I think the, the best conclusion probably is that the one who is equated with Yahweh is more than just a messenger of Yahweh. He's probably the pre-incarnate Christ who is manifesting himself. Um, so they sit down while they're eating, and in a nearby tent, Sarah is either doing some chores or she's uh, intentionally eavesdropping But she overhears this conversation, and uh, after the messengers ask, where's Sarah, your wife? Um, They tell Abram that 
This time next year, that the one representing Yahweh, probably the pre-incarnate Christ, says, uh, I'm going to come back in a year, and she's going to have a son. And she, in the tent that is nearby, overhears this, and just as an instant reaction, this impulse, she just laughs. Because she's about 90 years age at this time. She's thinking, whoa, <laughs> that ship has sailed a long time ago. So she thought. And the Lord, it says in the passage, the Lord overheard her laugh. And asked, why did Sarah laugh? And she comes out and she says, oh, I, I didn't laugh. I don't know what you're talking about. And he says... No, you did laugh. Is anything too hard for the Lord? After the meal, these messengers are ready to to leave, and Abraham walks with them a little bit out because they you know they don't have a house with a fenced-in gate. Um, but he sees them on their way. When we get to verse 17, verse 17 of chapter 18, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, or I've known him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. I want you to keep in mind this setting, this scene here. It's the heat of the day. Uh, They're sitting under a nice shade tree. There's sunlight. You can almost hear the birds chirping in this exchange. But then... The, the whole topic shifts. So intimacy with God is a great privilege. A privilege that we must not look down upon or shirk our shoulders at. But secondly, secondly intimacy with God discloses hard truths. Intimacy with God discloses hard truths. Verse 20, then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So God is not going down in order to find stuff out. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He knows all of this, but this is what's called an anthropomorphism for Abraham to understand that judgment is imminent on Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 22, So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So two of the men go on and go to Sodom, and one of them stays behind who is equated with Yahweh, the Lord. Verse 23, then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, 
so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So Abraham, knowing that Lot and his family have probably acclimated into Sodom, he starts this uh, negotiation process with God. And And he's like, Lord, you are too just to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And so he starts this negotiation, and he is interceding for Lot and his family. So he negotiates with the Lord from, to say, well, if there's 50 there, will you spare the city? God says, yeah, if there's 50, I'll spare the city. Abraham's like, there's never going to be 50 there. How about 45? And he works his way all the way down to 10, like we read in the passage. And Abraham probably settles at 10 because he, he assumes that surely there would be 10 people righteous in the city, whether it be Lot and his family or um, those that Lot and his family have influenced. Intimacy with God discloses hard truths. The more we come to, to Christ in that moment that we are fully aware of the weight of our sins. And for the, when we actually acknowledge and understand what that sin means in the presence of a holy God. And we experience His grace, right? When we're born again. And it's an amazing, awesome time throughout the rest of our lives. But there's, there's also like John experienced when he was getting the revelation of the book of Revelation, that there was a sweet aspect to the message, but there's also a bitter aspect to the message. That is, it is difficult. It is not pleasant for us to think about the fact that people we love may be objects of the wrath of God. And the righteousness and the justice of God are hard truths. But nevertheless, they are truths. Transcendent truths that go beyond the, t- the time and context of Genesis and even beyond our time and context. So intimacy with God will disclose these hard truths, difficult truths. But number three, even though these difficult truths are are hard for us to accept and even process sometimes. God is righteous to judge Sodom. That's number three. God is righteous to judge Sodom. Many people object to God's justice, but justice has to exist. Uh, I was reading a little bit about Joseph Stalin last night, who is responsible and orchestrated the murder of millions and millions of people many more than Hitler ever killed. And you read more about the life and the death of Stalin, and it seems unfortunate that Stalin died a relatively peaceful death in his bed. That doesn't seem fair at all, does it? But the righteousness and justice of God is is not limited to this life whatsoever. We could name a lot of or tell a lot of other stories 
that we could drag out into the sunlight, into the light, and, and, and it would expose how evil and how wicked our world really is. But God is vindicated. God is justified in judging the world system. He is right, and he is just to do that very thing. So in chapter 19, verse 1, the two angels came to Sodom in the, in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When, when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Lot is sitting at the gate, which the gate is where judges would sit, where leaders in the city would sit. Um, Lot, at this, at this point, he has come to uh, the inner workings of Sodom, the inner workings of the city, and he has some kind of position there with the movers and shakers. Maybe not a position, but he has a relationship with those that are the decision makers in the city. But keep in mind, a couple days later, all that Lot has schemed for and whatever, none of it's going to matter. It's all going to be gone instantly. And so Lot, when these messengers come, these travelers, he may or may not know something peculiar about them. The Bible says that they are angels. But Lot knew that nothing good happened in the streets of Sodom at night like most places, and he offers hospitality. And in that culture, once hospitality was offered, it was like the traveler was considered under the protection of the one that had offered this hospitality. Once they had come into this home, they were saying, I will protect you, I will take care of you, I'm taking responsibility for that. But before they lay down, in the house that night. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the city. So this isn't just a couple of bad eggs in the city. The wickedness of the male citizenship is extensive to the point that they even are going to surround the house to make sure that the people within it do not escape. Verse 5, And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. The word for know here is found in other places in the Old Testament. It has a sexual connotation. It's not that we can meet them and be chummy with them Get to know them. That is not what's going on here. This is a sexual act that they want to perform on these messengers. Verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. So Lot, even though he's been in Sodom for a while, he still has some kind of moral compass. He can recognize the wickedness that is around him. Second Peter, referring to this passage, it says, 
Uh, And if he rescued righteous Lot, talking about God, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Verse 7. So Lot is trying to negotiate with these guys. And he said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. More evidence that what the the men that had surrounded the house were asking for was not just to have a chat. Verse 9, but they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man lot and drew near to break the door down. Notice the contrast here. In chapter 18, when Abraham is fellowshipping with the Lord and these angelic messengers, the scene is bright. It's the sun of the heat of the day. And now we're in this scene where it is nighttime and it is dark. Also spiritually dark. Liberal scholars will try to tell tell you that the sin of Sodom was a sin of a lack of hospitality. But we know from the context here and what Lot assesses as their motives that it is much more than that. Um, this is why we get our, the words that aren't used as much these days, but in former generations, sodomy, sodomize, sodomites, because this is an instance of homosexual gang rape of what is they, they are trying to make occur. Now, in Jewish ethic, rape, of course, was wicked. But in Jewish ethic, homosexual rape was even more appalling. And there's nothing respectable about homosexual behavior anywhere in the Bible. Through the Old Testament and the New Testament, homosexuality is always presented as an egregious act and behavior. And even desire. Jude chapter 7 Again, commenting on this passage, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, which is a broad word, and pursued unnatural desire. What is the unnatural desire? That is, it's not man's desire for the woman, but man's desire for a man. These things serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Verse 10, it says, But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. The angels did this. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. These angels, they stick their hands from out from the, the door, they drag Lot in, and the whole house is preserved from this wicked act by the angels smiting them with an angelic or with a supernatural blindness. And 
this situation is starting, it's already been urgent, but it's starting to get more and more urgent. And they are running out of time. Uh, In verses 12 through 14, the messengers tell Lot to go and warn his family, any brothers, sisters, or uh, not brothers or sisters, but any sons-in-law or extended family. But they didn't believe him. Lot's soon-to-be sons-in-law even think that he is joking. And they don't go out with, with him. Verse 15, it says, As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. Lot is shuffling his feet, even with this urgent message. Continuing in verse 16. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. The messengers share the urgency of the situation and actually forcibly drag them out of the house and drag them out of the city because Lot is still shuffling his feet. Verse 17, and as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. It's a very pointed message. But in verse 18, Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly. For I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Are you you kidding me? (laughs) So the angels have have been very urgent with their message. They've even given Lot a sign by supernaturally imposing blindness on the men that were around the door, drug them out of the city, and Lot is still lingering. He's even negotiating. He's not... Thankful just for his life, he's like, that seems like a hard trip. How about I just go to this city over here? It's just a little city. And the messengers condescend and even allow that. But this block in the narrative, uh, this, this scene within the city, this is all a vindication of God's judgment. That he is showing and vindicating that God is indeed just. And righteous. When when God acts, it's not on an emotional whim. It's not just um, spur of the moment. He is acting consistent within his character and his all knowing and all wise nature. And God is always right in judging because he is just and he is righteous. Nextly, why do we give our hearts fully to God? Because God remembers the righteous. God remembers the righteous. Verse 23. Here's the climax of the story. The actual judgment of God. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire 
from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Now, it is possible that God used natural elements in this judging. But the cause of the destruction was wholly supernatural, whether he used natural elements or not. And this judgment is not just on Sodom. It's on Sodom, Gomorrah, and even other surrounding cities. Verse 26 But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, they've already escaped from Sodom and Gomorrah. They are in this little city called Zoar. This is not a a quick little behind-the-shoulder glance as they're leaving the city. This is not an accidental glance. This is a heart-longing gaze that Lot's wife has, that... Her heart, she's leaving Sodom. Her heart is still in Sodom. And she disobeys. And as Alan Ross says, Lot's wife became a monument of disobedience. Verse 27, And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So Abraham is brought back into this whole picture who's behind the scenes. He comes out and he looks and the cities in the valley are just engulfed. And it's a horrible seen and lot and he's got to be wondering what has happened with lot and his family and it's certainly not a good sign that god did not find 10 righteous people in the city but we've got to think because of lot's lingering and his hesitancy and the intercession of abraham uh that we've got to think that Lot would have suffered the exact same fate as the population of Sodom if it had not been for Abraham's intercession. Because of God's promise or God's kindness and compassion to Abraham, the angels drag Lot and his family out of the city. And in this passage, God is taking painstaking efforts to rescue Lot. Even with Lot leaving the city, he's still negotiating. But this rescue that God did was something that he performed on the behalf of a friend. And it reminds us, intercession matters. When we go to God in prayer, people are unaware of, of, or ignorant of the spiritual dangers that they face. The imminence of God's wrath. But intercession for people matter. And there are folks in this room that are are praying and praying for their kids and other loved ones. Don't stop. Because intercession matters. And God knows the righteous. God knows the righteous. Malachi 3.16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention to them and heard them. 
And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Fifthly, why do we give our heart wholeheartedly to God? Fifthly, Sodom doesn't give. Sodom takes. We've all at some point in our time been been fooled by the the, the sparkliness and the shininess of the bright things around us. Thinking, oh, if I only had this, if I only had this reputation or this, this position in my workplace or this house in my community or this particular vehicle or this or that. But here's the thing, it's all a lie. The world system doesn't give. It takes And it damages our soul. And that doesn't mean that we can live outside of this world system, right? Or outside of the world and just isolate ourselves like the Quran community during the time of of Jesus did. No, we still have to engage with with believers and unbelievers and be ambassadors for Christ. But we don't give our heart over to Sodom because it takes... And this is a pitiful scene that we come here um, in verse 30. Lot's a broken man. He's lost his wife. He's lost his home. He's lost his future sons-in-law. He's lost his possession. At one point, he had a bunch of flocks and he had a bunch of possessions when he and Abraham split up. And you would think, looking at this pitiful scene and all that he's lost, that the worst is behind them. Maybe he can dust himself off and move on with life. And you might think that, and you would be wrong. Verse 30, Now Lot went up out of Zoar, and he lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. There's, those caves are all around the Dead Sea, if you've ever been to that part of the world. A, uh, David had to hide in those, those caves. It was in those caves that the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And he's, he and his daughters are living in one of these caves. In verse 31, And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. There's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. It's a euphemism. Verse 32, Come, let us make our father drink wine, and, he will lie, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Benami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So, no doubt, Lot's daughters are traumatized by what has just happened, seeing their entire lives, their futures, seemingly go up in smoke, literally. And 
they want to have children. But their way of fixing this is Sodom's way of fixing this. Not God's way of fixing this. And just like their mother, their heart is still attached to the ways of Sodom. And this pitiful scene, Lot lost so much. He had accrued all these blessings because of identifying himself with and being in partnership with Abraham, who God had promised to, to bless. But now Lot has lost so much, and it's because of a wandering heart. Dale Ralph Davis said, as one looks back over the narrative, one can totally tally, one can tally Lot's losses. He lost his moral discernment and backbone. He lost the credibility of his witness with his sons-in-law. He lost a healthy sense of fear and his lingering. And he lost his family for God. In fact, the only assurance we have about Lot himself is 2 Peter 2, 7 through 8. Pitiful scene. The world takes. The world takes. Even if you accrue and can preserve it through the rest of this life, what are you going to take with you to heaven when you die from this world system? Nothing. Zero. My pastor growing up used to say all the time, you never see a U-Haul following a hearse. Because you can't take it with you. Now, there are some things that you can send on ahead that become, take the form of, of rewards when we get to heaven, but they are spiritual things. It's being an ambassador for Christ, spending time with Him, loving the, the, the coming of Christ and, and other things. But material, and as far as this world system goes, it does not give, it takes. And Lot started seemingly well, but he was dependent upon the spirituality of Abraham. When he split from Abraham, he started in a tent near Sodom. But then it progressed to sitting at the gate and having a house in Sodom. There were no barriers between his heart and Sodom. Derek Kidner said that the theme of, of Lot's narrative is that he is a righteous man without a pilgrim spirit which is what God had called Abraham to. Because God was not going to give Abraham that land in his lifetime. And guess what? We are pilgrims. That's the attitude that we have to have. And we look at this, and it's easy to um, look at the righteous judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah and be like, yeah, go God, go get those people. But listen, all unbelief is subject to the judgment of God. One day, just like those in Sodom, you're going to wake up to the last day of your life. You may be aware of it, you may not. That day is going to come. Matthew eleven twenty three and 24, during Jesus' ministry, Jesus said, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? That is the town where Jesus did a lot of base ministry. He said, You will be brought down to Hades. 
For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. So Jesus is saying, if I would have performed the miracles in Sodom and Gomorrah that I have performed here in Capernaum, they would have repented. But I tell you, Capernaum, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Unbelief and rejection of Christ, when you've heard the true gospel of Jesus, opens you up to worse judgment. If you've sat under the preaching in this church or other churches and you've heard a faithful testimony of the gospel, guess what? Whether you like it or not, you are now open to a stricter condemnation and more terror and judgment in hell than even the folks in Sodom. And many of you, unless you're a first-time guest, you have heard the gospel before. You've probably heard the gospel outside of these walls. The gospel is that we are sinners. We've inherited it from Adam, but we've also chosen it ourselves. And we can't get, we cannot restore our relationship to God. It will remain in a hostile relationship until we are reconciled to him through Jesus. And Jesus dying on the cross and raising from the dead was key to that reconciliation because he took the wrath of God that we deserved. And when we put our faith and trust in Christ, that wrath that we deserve is removed from us for all of eternity because it was placed on Christ. That's the gospel. And if you reject that, you have opened yourself up to worse judgment than even Sodom. And so 2 Corinthians 5.11, we can say with Paul, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is a consuming fire. But listen, there is a rescue that is available. And it's through the gospel of Jesus. It's not through good works. It's not through getting baptized. It's not through joining this church. It is putting your faith and trust in Jesus alone. And resting in that, that is the only place where you can find rescue from the condemnation and wrath of God, which is just and righteous. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Lord, we are so thankful for your justice and righteousness and that that will be dispensed in an all-wise, all-knowing manner. And thank you for that, Lord. Father, this is a serious thing that we take very soberly. We are not exempt from the judgment of our sin based on our good works, based on our personality or charity work or the way we vote. It's all about what Jesus has done for us. And Lord, I and others, once again, we plead the cross and the resurrection of Christ on our behalf. 
For those here this morning that have not done that, Lord, convict them of sin. That heart that is calloused. Whatever is blocking belief, God, we ask that you would remove that, that you would give them a new heart, a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone. Lord, would your Holy Spirit just press on them because we love them and we care about them. Most importantly, we care about your glory and what you have revealed. God, we lovingly intercede for them this morning that you would work on their behalf. And Lord, for those that prayers are being poured out all the time for family members and daughters and sons, we intercede for them as well. Not knowing where all those people are just this right moment. Many of them are not engaging in what we would consider to be wicked things. They are mostly sensible people, but they don't believe in Christ. So that sin barrier is still there. They're still carrying that. God, we ask that you would send people into their lives that would be real, authentic, that would be people that are fellowshipping with you and that they would be unashamed and bold proclaimers of the gospel. And Lord, that we would be those kind of people that people maybe on the other side of the country or other parts of the world are praying that you would send into the lives of people that are here. Lord, continue to work in hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand to your feet. We're going to sing a song in a moment. If you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as your Savior, we urge you, do it right now. Right now, one day, you're going to wake up to that last day. We don't know when that is. Most importantly, Believe on Christ because of the love that God has shown to you and what he has made available to you. Where you're at, you admit, acknowledge that you're a sinner and that only Christ can save you. And you tell God that you're putting your faith and trust in him. You're repenting from doing everything on your own and embracing what he has done on your behalf.